Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to The View from the Lane, the award-winning Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. Joining me, your host, Danny Kelly, are The Athletic's Charlie Eccleshare and James Moore. And a special guest for you today, John Wenham, who runs the Lily White Rose Spurs account and uh, is something of, a, of an expert um, on the younger team, Spurs' academy teams. And so a very good welcome to all of you, especially you, John. Thank you for joining us. Now, on the last po- podcast, we discussed... How not only are the is the men's team top of the table, but the academy side is also top of the table. As is the under 18s it's incredible, really. Um, but bear in mind, and this is why we got John Wenham on, that Spurs were officially relegated last season. So good morning to you all. Good morning, John. First of all, I have to ask you this because we do all of our guests. I should make the point as well that we will also be talking about other things and looking ahead to Friday's clash with Crystal Palace and that uh, legendary. Um, five points clear at the top of the table if that was to happen. And we'll tell you when that last happened. And let me tell you that only one of the people on this podcast was alive when it when it happened. But John, first of all, I asked to ask everybody this question. What is your connection with Spurs? How did you become lucky enough in life's lottery to be a Spurs fan? So where I grew up, Danny, in kind of Muswell Hill, Alexandra Palace area, you either support Tottenham or Arsenal. And uh, my dad took me to White Hart Lane, I think, 95 uh, 2-2 home draw with Coventry, two Dion Dublin bullet headers for the Sky Blues, and I was hooked. That that feeling when you first see the green pitch at White Hart Lane, um, you, you see, you sort of know then and there that's going to be your team, and I felt home amongst Tottenham. So, uh, yeah, I was kind of hooked from that point onwards, and, and my support of the club has just kind of grown ever since. When did you start um, being particularly interested in the academy and the young players coming through? Because um, the lots of us, with all due respect to everybody, um, follow the first team with an almost maniacal intensity and then worry about the youngsters a little later. Yeah, I've, I've always really had a passion in kind of youth football and youth development. So uh, I'm actually a coach of a, a girls football team up here in Hartford as well. Um, but for Tottenham, it was certainly, I lived in Enfield for a, for a period of about five or six years. And during that time, I lived kind of a stone's throw from Hotspur Way. So I had lots of opportunities to go down there, watch a lot of games. And I love the feeling of how close you are to the match and sort of, players and the family and it's a real togetherness feeling when you're down at Hotspur Way so I just really built up a, a sort of affinity to, to going down to Hotspur Way and supporting the, the younger teams and uh, very much enjoyed it and I've you know watched the progress of the likes of Tanganga from scoring in the Youth Champions League against Real Madrid and Oliver Skip and, and, and of course you know Harry Kane was just that little bit before he was breaking into the first team but uh, yeah it's always good to see who your next up and coming stars are and at Tottenham at the moment we've got a lot of them. We have been Myself and Charlie, James and uh, Tim, Jack Pitbrook, we've been following a narrative here on uh, on the View from the Lane that Spurs last season at under-21 level 
were so dreadful that they had to be relegated out of the league. And then there was something happened. They didn't get relegated. And now they're magnificent. I think in the preview of the show, you kind of pointed out to me that that wasn't quite what's happened. But we need to hear the whole of that story now. Yes, I think it starts with momentum. Tottenham's under-21s last year started the season badly. They didn't get a win up until January. And then, it, you know, there was the exact same group of players. There wasn't new players, uh, apart from Will Blankshire, who joined, but he didn't feature too heavily. Um, they, from January onwards, were phenomenal. They, they, I said they won up at Liverpool, they won away to Arsenal, they beat Manchester City. Um, they basically came down to a, a, a 3-2 defeat away to Blackburn, really lost the momentum for the boys where they were leading 2-0 and an Ashley Phillips-inspired Blackburn secured a, a 3-2 win against the Lucas Mora featuring Tottenham. Um, so, yeah, it, it was really disappointing that they ended the season with a 1-0 win against West Ham, but it wasn't quite enough on goal difference. They were relegated, so to speak. Sorry, why are you putting relegated, for those of you who are, not, who are listening to this podcast without vision, in, 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 in air, air quotes? Tottenham got very fortunate in a, in a change of the rules meant that the the PL2 relegation no longer existed. And then what they did was they expanded the league to 24 teams. So they brought up the Category 1 rated academies from the league below and merged them into a bigger uh, one Premier League 2 in effect. But what was really interesting was I know the players were, were really dreading you know, going down more so the long coach trips to the likes of Sunderland and Middlesbrough. And now they're playing them anyway. Um, with these clubs being promoted. So, um, no, but it's, it's been a turnaround. And, and you asked me the key as to why the change. Why are Tottenham doing so well now? Well, actually, what's interesting is there's been a promotion of the better under-18s players, the likes of Alfie Dorrington, Luca Gunter, Jamie Donnelly. Um, and, and those players have had a winning culture with them from last season, obviously winning the under-17s Premier League Cup, the under-18s Premier League Cup. They've brought that mantle and leadership skills that those three players in particular hold and brought it to the bear in the under-21s. And we've now seen a really strong crop in that group of, of leaders in the squad. But more so, they've also changed tactics, and they're now playing a style that's very, very similar to Ange Postacoglu's Tottenham first team, as do the under-18s. We see fullbacks inverting and moving into the midfield and basically playing with a six in midfield when you count those two fullbacks really you know, bringing the ball and uh, moving it into the middle of the park and giving up options. So we've seen a change of formation, we've seen a change of belief, but I think more so the team having real leaders in it has seen this positive start. And as we're seeing with the first team, as we're seeing actually with Tottenham women as well, and as we're seeing with the under-18s, all the teams are really riding high on a crest of positivity. We should say as well, shouldn't we, John, like um, I know from speaking to academy coaches and this sort of thing that, of course, results are really important, but it's not quite like, you know, it's not sort of like playing Premier League football where results is kind of the be-all and end-all. Like a lot of it is, you, you might accept there might be some bad results along the way as long as you're playing the right kinds of football. So sometimes as well, a, a team can be on a bad run of results, but unlike in sort of um, Premier League football, coaches can still be taking quite a lot of positives and saying, well, yes, we, we're going to lose some games, but ultimately this is about developing players, developing a way of playing, and you've got to take some hits uh, along the way. Yeah, Charlie, I completely agree. And in, in terms of developing players, I, I remember a game last year against uh, Sporting in the Youth Champions League where they even moved Jamie Donnelly to centre-back. So they were, they were trying out, they do try out yeah. different things on players to learn different experiences. You know, when, the, when things are tough, when you're under pressure, who can step up and, you know, be in that defence and clear first headers from corners and that sort of thing. So I completely agree. It is also about, you know, challenging players to, to, to do different things and to be involved in different scenarios. I mean, I was very interested in what you said, John, there about the all the teams now, women, the younger kids, the under-21s, 
playing in a style that Poster Coglu has tried to inculcate immediately into the Spurs first team. Does that mean that over the past couple of years that they've been trying to play like Antonio Conte's teams playing it? I mean, don't laugh. I have a serious question. No, but that, this was already happening before, wasn't it, John? They were already playing. It, it hasn't just been that since Postacoglu's come in, they've started to play good football. I mean, that, that predates him a bit, doesn't it? But they, they certainly played good football, but um, I, I certainly think, you know, I've never seen fullbacks from Tottenham's academy moving right into midfield in such a similar way that Porro does, you know, for, for the first team. I mean, I just want to name reference two under-18s players that will have had no mention before this season by almost anybody. They're two academy fullbacks from the under-18s. You've got Mason King, who's a, who's a left-back, uh, obviously a great name, King, to be a Tottenham player. Uh, and then you've got Leo Black, who's a right-back. And these are two guys that have gone totally under the radar before now, including by myself. But seeing them play in that midfield role and do it so expertly has been a big reason why the under-18s have done so well, because they're basically having extra players in the midfield and they're just getting on top of opponents. Um, so, so the change in formation is also allowing other players to flourish that have totally gone under the radar before. The thing, the thing is as well, though, Danny, is because you raised the Conte point, but Conte just didn't have the same level of interest. So, that, you know, it's unlikely. It's not like he would have been saying to you know uh, under 18s coaches and whatever, like guys, we should be playing back three. He would, he just, it just wouldn't have bothered him in the same way. I mean, this is something we've reported on before that the disconnect grew between the first team and the academy. And really, I mean, John, you'll you'll know this as well, that, you know, you've got to go back a bit to the, you know, the McDermott-Pochettino era when there was that kind of synergy between them because then they brought in Mourinho. Nuno wasn't there for very long, but Mourinho and Conte, and despite Mourinho's protestations, neither of those coaches are known particularly for worrying about the academy. Yeah, Mourinho's was more so giving lots of academy players their debuts, only as a reference point later down the line. And even, <laughs> if you remember, mentioned the chance of Dane Scarlett going to the, the last World Cup with England's first team, um, which is incredible comment to make, but, but there he did. <laughs> yeah, you know, in terms of the change up in the academy, I think another thing that's worth touching on, I think there were just too many staff last season. I remember talking to Chris Powell at an end-of-season Nike event, and I sort of asked him what his remit was and what his role was, and he didn't really know. Um, he seemed to be doing a job that was also overlapping with the chap Simon Davis that came in from Manchester City, not Digger, the former Tottenham Welsh winger. Um, and obviously Greta Steinson was there as well. So there was a, just too many chefs in the kitchen, so to speak. And I think maybe reducing the numbers of staff has led to people really identifying their roles and knowing what they're doing. Um, and, and he's seeing you know, positive results for Tottenham across the academy age groups this year. John, the very best academies, I'm looking at Manchester City, I'm looking at Chelsea um, over the years, have managed to combine two things. They bring players through um, to play in the first team. Rico Lewis is the most obvious example at Manchester City just now. Fantastic little footballer. Um, but they also um, make money for the clubs because they sell their products on, sometimes, uh, for, you know, like cold for fantastic money. And sometimes they just they go off as perfectly good rounded footballers to play in the lower leagues in England and all the rest of it. Um, what would you say from your knowledge on what is the the purpose that Spurs see of the of their academy team at the moment? Is it to try and move players on and make money, or is it to get somebody through following Oliver Skip into that into that first team? I think Harry Kane aside, Tottenham are now terrible at making money from academy prospects, and it wasn't that long ago that they were one of the best. I go back to a period where 
They moved on the likes of Stephen Kulka for eight million, Alex Pritchard for eight million, Ryan Mason for thirteen million, Nabil Bentaleb, albeit he joined the academy later, went for eighteen million and a one million loan fee. The list goes on and on and on. Tottenham are one of the best, at, uh, you know, sending players out on loan. They get their earn their stripes, get their experience, and then be sold on for decent fees if they weren't going to crack it at Tottenham. Since then, we've seen fantastic academy players go for near to nothing. And what Tottenham have now focused on is huge sell-on clauses, like they've done in the case of, of Dennis Serkin, who's doing very well at Sunderland. Uh, Jack Clark, who's basically given away for nothing, but with a 50% sell-on clause. We've seen uh, Marcus Edwards, who Spurs you know, used his sell-on clause as part of a reduction in the Pedro Porro transfer. So there has been a change in strategy uh, with those sort of sales. But for Tottenham, it is still about bringing players through. Um, obviously there's a couple that in my opinion are right on the borders now and training with the first team every week and a, a point I really want to mention is this it's still an issue I have with Tottenham is favouritism of new and expensive signings over the existing players and in my opinion and from what I've seen of them at under 21 level I don't know if they're better and the two I think of are Ashley Phillips who is a, a good defender and is alright and he has the physicality and that might be why he's pushed ahead of Alfie Dorrington but if you just look at the two on a football basis which one, we're talking about modern progressive centre-backs, which one can carry the ball out of defence? Which one has got a fantastic, you know, driven pass on him? Well, it's Alfie Dorrington, you know. And then the other one is uh, Alejo Velez, who's joined for huge money uh, from Argentina, probably on four times the salary that Jamie Donnelly is. I look at the two in the under-21s and I think, which one is the better player? And for me, it's Jamie Donnelly. So there is this thing of the new expensive signing always getting the preference. And at the moment, that's just getting on the bench or, you know, getting the odd minutes here and there. But, the way Jamie Donnelly started the season for the under-21s and also against Colchester's you know, semi-first team in the EFL Cup where Tottenham went to Colchester and picked up a 5-0 win and he was the complete dominator in that performance. It's slightly unfair, that, that, you know, but that's just the way it is. That's just modern football for you. You know, somebody that comes in on triple the money is going to get favoured. I mean, this is kind of what people were saying, probably what, like sort of 2013, when that, you know, that, that previous kind of golden generation that you mentioned, John, of Kulker, Townsend, Pritchard, Kane, Mason, Pritchard, yeah, exactly, Ventilab. Uh, they were kind of on the cusp and getting very few minutes. I think, you know, Redknapp would kind of deign to play them in a Europa League game or whatever. But like in the league, they were getting nowhere near. Uh, if you, this is a horrible question and a difficult question. <laughs> If you had to compare that generation to this one, because it feels like this is the first time since then where there have been multiple players that people are talking about, how, how would you kind of, as a group rather than individuals, which is probably a bit unfair, how would you kind of compare them? Look, that, that group w- was hugely successful. Let's make no mistakes about that. But that's because, in my opinion, they were managed better from a younger age. I, I go back always to a, a period where Tottenham had four boys on loan at Yeovil when they were all 17 and they went together and they played serious league football. That was Kulka, Mason, Townsend and John Abika. Three of those four went on to be full England internationals. They were out playing football at 17, earning their strike, playing with people, playing for a mortgage. You know, now this fear Tottenham have, and there's been a couple of bad examples like Niall John going to Charlton and it hasn't worked out, where I feel like it's scared the club into loaning players out. Um, but, 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 you know, that shows that we were doing it right. Tottenham really were. But comparing the two groups, I mean, for me now, there is a comparable group of players, certainly. You know, I, I personally think Jamie Donnelly is, if provided with the opportunities, he has the mentality, he has the mindset, he's already training with the first team and he's not afraid of that. You know, so you've got him, you've got Alfie Devine. I know people are questioning the loan at Port Vale now. Uh, Dane Scarlett is another one. But for me, all those experiences, whether you go on loan and actually don't play that much, but just being in that environment, you learn things, you toughen up, you learn, you know, other key skills away from just putting the ball in the back of the net. So I, I think Tottenham have got a really good core now and, and a group 
Um, but it will just be about opportunities. And, and only time will tell whether they'll be as successful as those players. Because I said, three of those four played for England and three of those four went for fees of over £10 million. You know, so so there was success on both levels. Um, but, I, I, you know, are they going to get these opportunities? Well, it's very difficult at the moment of Tottenham playing just one game a week. Yeah, I was going to say that you, you must have been gutted the Conference League and the early Carabao Cup. I mean, who knows they would have played in Carabao Cup. They didn't in that first game, but... The Conference League was where, I mean, that where Europa League actually group games was where Mourinho would unload the bench for the final minute so he could uh, give players their debuts. But And I mean, even this season, I, I now think that Tottenham will probably finish in the top five. And obviously with the rule change, that's probably a Champions League spot. So where are these younger players going to get an opportunity? Because as we've seen in the Champions League, you know, the Premier League lineups last night, everyone goes full strength for the Champions League. There isn't really a chance unless it's group game six to, to, and you're already through to heavily rotate. So if Tottenham do finish in the Champions League again, where are these boys going to get the opportunity to come in and play? Well, they're not, is the honest answer. That changed, John, from being incredibly willing to loan players out to teams in League One and League Two to wanting to keep everyone in-house and basically be at the club at all times. I, I, the perception I had was that was kind of a Pochettino decision. Is that is that fair? Yeah, absolutely fair. Uh, and the ones I go back to that were incredibly, in my opinion, the, the only one that really benefited from that was Harry Winks in terms of establishing himself as a Tottenham first-team player. But the ones that were definitely stagnated were Carl Walker-Peters and a player that no one's mentioned in the last two years, Josh Olimar, who had all the attributes as an academy player. We're talking about other academy players now. Josh was an absolute standout in academy football. You know, he was miles better than his contemporaries and people we'd play against. And, and, and his career now has just kind of stagnated, which is a real shame. Had he been out alone, you know, playing senior men's football, 17, 18, who knows what could he could have become? Do you think there's a, there's anything in, uh, John? This is something I've spoken to lots of people about, the the kind of Harry, you know, the silver medalist theory that, you know, guys like Kane, to an extent Tanganga, who weren't necessarily the best in the academy and were able to go under the radar a bit, versus people like Marcus Edwards, Troy Parrott, who there was so much hype around. And it can be quite overwhelming and hard to manage that. And I just wonder... Looking now at the the current um, academy, you know, if, if if you think that might play out again, that there are some of these guys who do get built up and or whether we've learned a bit from that, because I do think maybe, you know, that there were, I think it was quite, social media was quite new. And I do remember, you know, the hype around Marcus Edwards, Troy Parrott, it was now looking back pretty crazy given how young they were and how little they played. I think that's just the changing of the times with football and, and, and the coverage of it. You know, all clubs have got it now. Like I, I know... So many people will know of a United under-18s forward called Shea Lacey just because he gets hyped up so much. And obviously Man United have got so many fans covering that sort of area of the club. So I just think the way football has changed. But, but that's difficult for players and, and clubs have got to have things in place to to help keep them, you know, uh, motivated and help keep them grounded. Um, we're going to see it at Tottenham with Mikey Moore. Make no mistakes about that. You know, he's another one that's going to go exactly that, that way in terms of hype and the sort of player he is and the exquisite finishes it naturally will be shared across social media and um but clubs have got to you know do everything they can as I said to keep these players grounded and, and motivated and that's an interesting point actually it goes on to money at Tottenham now obviously we saw last summer Tottenham lose two of their best academy prospects in Sam Amo Amior and Jaden Magoma to England under 16 at the time internationals who went to Southampton and people were thinking how on earth for Tottenham losing their best academy players to Southampton. Well, quite simply, it came down to money. I know people will say it's opportunities, but at the time, Tottenham were not offering the money that, that all these other big clubs were. And there has been a change with that. I think that was led by Greta Steinson. I think he had the the ability, maybe with Fabio Paratici, to, to have the conversations with the agents and with the associated players' parents to say, look, we are going to change things. And that saw Tottenham 
hang on to the likes of Mikey Moore, Callum Wallace-Esse last summer, two players that all the big clubs wanted. Can I ask another question, John? Four or five years ago, when um, I think it was Sky was showing the under-21s league, I was appalled by um, by some of the games I saw, not because the players weren't technically skillful, they were very much so, but the the matches were nothing like what they would confront if they played in the Europa League or if they played in the Carabao Cup or if they pl- came on 15 minutes in the Premier League. I'll be honest with you, the under-21 league standard is still very low. Um, I've heard some coaches, agents describe it as kind of a graveyard league in terms of the by the time you're a second year pro, the aim should be to uh, well, sorry, when you're in your 18, under 18 second year, you should be aiming to go out alone uh, and not playing too much Premier League two football. Hopefully, the change of expanding it and you know bringing it into to bigger stadiums sometimes and the coverage of it will lead to an improvement. Um, but but the, the level is still low, and, and you know I actually think the level in the under 18s league is better and the format of the league is better. I know that people listening will be going, yes, Danny, that's all very interesting. Yes, James, yes, Charlie, it's all very interesting. They'll want to know the names. Um, pick out half a dozen boys at whatever age they are who are at Spurs now who you think might one day, and Jamie Donnelly, obviously you believe in 100%, um, make either the first team or will, in this rather cruel way we can modify the players, be sold on for a fee that will allow the Spurs Academy to fl- flourish for the next year, you know? Yeah, so, so I think I, I, you know, you've mentioned Jack Jamie. He's my number one standout to come through. I'm actually writing these down now, John. I'll yeah. be holding you to this. Yeah, another one that I've had to eat massive humble pie on is Yago Santiago Alonso. He was a player that last season I expected to leave Tottenham and rejoin a team in kind of the Spanish third or fourth division. But actually, the coaches knew right, shock horror, and uh, he's developed to no end this season. And there's an argument when you look at the position he plays and you look at Brian Hill and the attributes he's got. Well, one of them is significantly stronger on the ball. One of them has got a better skill set and set of tricks. And one of them is better at finishing. And that's the one that Tottenham have got from the academy. And if they keep, will become homegrown in a couple of years' time. So, Yago Santiago Alonso is one that's really gone under the radar. But his performances this season and towards the very back of last really have stood up for me. As I mentioned earlier, Alfie Dorrington in defence, I think, is fantastic. Got a fantastic set of skills on him. Leadership, good height, can win the ball, can play with the ball as well. So he'd be another one. The goalkeepers, I think Josh Keeley is one. Um, you know, he's Ireland under 21s, now first-team keeper. Good at playing under pressure. Can play out very much a modern goalkeeper. And then moving down to the under-18s, free I'd pick out from that team would be Tyrese Hall. He's a central midfielder that's been on England under-19 standby list for the last few tournaments. I believe he's now, it's a bit of an exclusive for you, he's going to convert to Jamaica. Um, he's had advances to play with them and would go straight into their kind of first-team setup, which would be really exciting for him. Um, and then obviously you've got Mikey Moore. Now, now Mikey has got everything. He's got the trickery. He's got strength, which is the biggest attribute. He's kind of built in a... Wayne Rooney physique style, very, very tough and big and powerful, but for a wing player who this season has advanced as an out-and-out forward. Um, so Mikey is another one. And then obviously there's a centre-back in that group, last one, which would be Archie Chaplin. We've gone really under the radar so far, but he's got great attributes, can play the ball, and uh, has got good leadership skills as well. So they'd be the ones that I'd sort of stand out for Tottenham at the moment. Absolutely fascinating, John. Thank, thank you so much. Now, stay with us, John, for the next few minutes because Charlie has written a piece on enjoying the wave of Spurs' exhilarating start to the season, related, of course, to the start that the kids have made as well. Um, Charlie, you've written about why Spurs fans should just let themselves dream. Yeah, I I mean, obviously there's a lot of talk at our Spurs in the race for the title, potentially. Are they not? And the thing is, it basically comes to the premise that the league, City's dominance, they've won five out of the last six, means that winning the league is bloody hard. Um, 
but so you know you can get bogged down with thinking that with what you know if you start fretting over every city result and thinking they're you know are they going to win the league are they going to trample over everyone they probably will and i just think at this point this it's such a fun it's been such a fun start spurs are already massively exceeding expectations if you want to drip and there's such a we've spoken about this before there's such a thing now on social media of taunting fans if they get too excited and then screenshotting their tweets and three months later saying ah you thought you were going to win the league and you haven't and you're fifth and and i just kind of think fuck that enjoy it luxuriate in it let yourself dream um this this is the really fun bit i mean exactly right james you pointed this out um on on tuesday that we are you know those of us who are spurs fans are in a, a, just a wonderful spot at the moment where you can dream, but it's not become it's not become semi reality yet. So you don't have to worry about every single point. Yeah, you know, and we remember from kind of the the glory days under Pochettino how stressful it is when you're in a run of games in the season where you basically feel like you need to win every single week. And although because Spurs have started well, obviously we do have that standard now, and we do probably you know we will be upset if we don't beat Palace on Friday night, for example. It's not quite the same pressure yet. So it is enjoyment without the pressure. So yeah, we should definitely milk that now for this part of the season while it lasts because uh, if it lasts much longer then I think it does become suddenly a lot more stressful. It does, but it's stress in a way that you're the worst... Ca- if, if let's say Spurs are in this position in two months, three months, four months, whatever, you're then in a position where, yeah, it is incredibly stressful, but the worst case scenario is you still have a season that massively, massively exceeds expectations. And it is better stress than the last few months of last season. That probably has to be said. Absolutely. Are you dreaming, John? Well, I'm, I'm taking it quite slowly at the moment. Obviously, we've played 25% of the season now. I think for Tottenham this season, what they've got to do is just take it in steps. You know, if they can get to a point where they look like they're mathematically points-wise going to guarantee a top five finish, say, take it from there and then see where we can aim to. You know, I think we've just got to take it slowly, get our points on the board. We're, we're already up, you know, seven points from the games against Arsenal, Liverpool, Man United on last season. Um, so, so the progress is there. Just, just keep the faith, and, and we've got to keep going. You mentioned social media there, Charlie. Uh, this is one of the rare times I'm going to do this. I'm going to make a, a confession about the mainstream media, which you know I love to pretend I'm not part of, but I am. Um, and you're right about my social media, and then the you know na 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 na. You thought you were going to win thing, but there's a second part. This isn't there, and that is that in the mainstream media, the big you know radio stations and TV stations, the endless question of are this team or that team or the other team in the race for the, t- you know, likely to be champions. All of this, or to win the European Cup, all of this um, is is setting up, a, to use the modern phraseology, a narrative of failure. That's all it is, isn't it? You're, you're not allowed to dream anymore. You're not allowed to say we're in contention or that even we're a good team because what they want to do is to say, you see, I tell, they, they weren't very good and they thought they were very good. And I, I tell you, on a personal level, I find it pathetic. What they love to do more, even more than that, is attribute the perceived failure down to a kind of mental fragility, and it's about bottling. Like if Spurs, if Spurs don't win the league this season, it'll be because their squad isn't good enough that they're, you know, they didn't have the options. But it's so much more convenient to say, like, let's say they do win against Palace, and it's five points. Then it can be, and, and then let's say they end up fourth or fifth or something. It's like, <laughs> they went from five points at the top to fourth or fifth, like that, you know, bottlers, whatever. And it's, yeah, and it's it's such double standards as well because you're in a situation where, and I, I referred to this in the piece, the Premier League is so screwed by City's dominance. Arsenal last season won 12, drew one of their first 14 games to go five points clear, 
They were five points clear, had won 12, drawn one. And Sky asked, are they title contenders? They were five points clear after 14 games. But the ridiculous thing is it wasn't a ridiculous question. It was a totally legitimate question to ask. And how screwed a league has to be that if you're only five points clear after 14 games, having won basically all your games, it's still debatable whether you can even compete with Man City. And guess what? City won the league by five points. So Arsenal would have had to win all 14 of their first 14 games. And that's what City, that's what Spurs are up against. But that's why I just think don't let City, you know, don't worry about that stuff. Just enjoy the football. John, it's been an absolute treat um, to, uh, to get your views on, on the current team. Um, and all the t- players that are coming through. Thank you very much indeed. Follow John at the Lily White Rose on Twitter. Lots and lots and lots of Spurs fans do. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Yeah, welcome back to View from the Lane. Um, we've said goodbye to John Wenham now. That still leaves me, Danny Kelly, Charlie Eccleshare and James Moore. And we didn't get a chance, and Charlie, I know you've written a piece about him, talk about Spurs' new technical director, Johan Langer. I think what you've done is you've spoken to the Athletics' uh, Aston Villa writer, 
uh, Greg Evans, for a piece on Langer because that's where he's come from. What have you learned? Yeah, spoke to a few people um, who know him uh, from Denmark and then Greg, uh, who covers Villa, yeah, who's, who knows a huge amount about him. So, And, and generally, um, Greg was, was pretty positive. Um, I think he... So he came into Villa... Uh, very data-driven. That's kind of one of his um, hallmarks. He had a knack um, in Denmark for sort of spotting young talent, developing them and selling them at a profit. So, you know, what we were just talking about with John, um, that would obviously go down well. I mean, I think at Villa, it's, it's if you look at just his signings, there are some hits, there are some misses. Um, it's not kind of if if that's you know the way you want to judge someone which is always a little tricky to do because obviously it's so circumstantial and i think they're actually quite a good example villa a bit like how spurs have been not getting the alignment right because they had langer who's very data driven gerard and then gerard came in as manager and you know gerard's not a luddite or anything like that but even he commented on how he felt villa became too focused on data so i don't think those two necessarily um, were kind of completely aligned in their way of thinking. The thing is as well, though, Unai Emery wasn't his appointment. Um, and then obviously Emery came in, wanted his own man in the kind of role Langer was in. And so, but, you know, they kept him on Langer for a while because they really liked him. They wanted him to have a position. But I think the sense from Villa was always, A, it wouldn't be long before someone else came in for him. And B, when that happened, you know, he was he was going to want that. Um but it feel, you know it feels like a sensible appointment. The way he oper- you know, he said to be a very good operator. Um, he gets on with people, but is you know tough in negotiations. Um, and yeah, so you know, Spurs obviously, the, you know, it's probably what about six months total uh, between Paratici leaving the managing director of football role and Langer coming in as uh, technical director, and obviously there's Scott Munn as well. So the it's changed quite a lot, and Greta Steinson's left. Just for the, the the stupid among us, I'll count myself among that group. Um, try and describe now, with Langer's arrival, the hierarchy below Daniel Levy. Scott Munn, basically, he uh, chief football officer is his is his title, and he basically oversees all the different departments. So first team, women's academy. So that's a pretty big role, you know. People describing him as Levy's sort of eyes and ears. Uh, then Langer, obviously, he's in as technical director and he's basically heading up the recruitment operation. Um, and they will also then have a chief scout because Leonardo Gabonini has left the club and that's a position they're you know, actively um, looking to appoint. Then you've got Simon Davis, uh, who John mentioned there, who kind of oversees the academy. He's in the kind of Dean Rastrick role as well. Um, and then... There's, um, what's his title? Head of Football Strategy, Andy Scolding. So that, that that is quite a lot of change in a pretty short amount of time. Because even last summer was another big period of change. So I think Spurs will want now things to settle down a bit. It should help. They You'd expect they'd have a manager in place for a good while. And, and uh, you know, Postacoglu's spoken about that he's not been... You know, he hasn't straight-batted questions about the lack of ta- technical director. He said how weird it was doing this uh, summer transfer window without one um and you know he it, it's not an appointment that would have surprised him he would have known it was coming and you know bit been uh, supportive of it they've spoken a few times and that that is going him and langer is going to be a really important relationship now thank you very much indeed for that um james it's rare that um we 
ask a question to which you don't immediately know the answer, um, but then you do have an army of underlings at The Athletic who you can set the task. So we're going to talk about Crystal Palace in just a second. And there is a possibility, let's not kid ourselves, um, that Spurs could go five points clear at the top of the top division in English football. And we were all scratching our heads and racking what brains uh, God has seen fit to give us um, to say, when was the last time Spurs were five points clear in the top division? You didn't know, James, which, uh, given that you're the quiz king, I was a bit surprised about. But you did set you did set your army of, uh, as I say, asymmetrically haircutted minions on the task. <laughs> <laughs> so I asked I asked the athletics Duncan Alexander, who does uh, live in South East London. So I don't, I don't I wouldn't say he has an asymmetrical haircut, but that is uh, that's his energy certainly. Trendy glasses um, for sure. Trendy glasses, yeah, exactly. And this is possibly not a surprise. And, and, you know, we were racking our brains before to try and work out when it was Spurs could last that far ahead. Yeah, so look, this is probably not a massive surprise. The last time Spurs were five or more points ahead at the top of the uh, top flight of English football was when they were eight points clear right at the end of 1960-61, which, of course, was the last time they won the league. So there's your stat. If Spurs go five points clear on Friday night, the last time they were that far clear at the top of a league, they won the league. In doing this, and and this isn't just an unnecessary dig at a, a former manager, uh, and and the, not the normal one of the normal managers we normally dig out on this podcast. Uh, Pochettino was only top of the league what, like for one round of matches in the entire time he was at Spurs. Oh, you, hang on, you're, you've turned against Poch, haven't you? It's pretty obvious, so you're bound to bring this up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, but in but in researching this, that's what we found out. That just once after his second game as well, home to QPR, and I should say John, it was John that actually mentioned this, so we should shout out that he was the one who uh, had that knowledge. One game, of course, yeah, because they were they were one one nil and they won four nil. Yeah, they won one nil at West Ham, yeah, four nil at home to QPR. It is kind of crazy that I mean it's. Like we've spoken about before, 15-16, they were never top, and 16-17, when they got 86 points, they were never top. Listen, it was Bald Jesus 5000 who asked that question about the five points, um, Let's, uh, let, 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 which takes us then to the possibility of actually going five points clear. Um, and let's be truthful. I, I, the way I see the, the Premier League at the moment is that the 10 teams who I thought would all be, would, would be the top 10 are now the top 10. It's really started to level out. Because there are either games you look at and you're like, God, that's really hard. Or games and you're like, oh, that looks, <laughs> should be quite straightforward. And Palace are in that bottom half. They're without their two best players. Eze, Elise and, and Zaha gone. Think about the power that's come out of that team with injury and transfers. It's extraordinary. Their defensive record is, I mean, I know they lost 4 0 at Newcastle last weekend, but like up to that point, their defensive record has been really good. It's a bit of a cliche, but if you take two players of that quality out of a team, uh, at least saying Eze, then like anyone would miss them, but obviously, especially someone like Palace. Yeah, it, it has really nullified them. And I think they're like, uh, their kind of XG is insanely low. Like their quality of a chance they've been creating hasn't been especially good. And that kind of stands to reason when you take two creative players of that standard out of a team. So, in that sense, it's, it's a very good time to play them, assuming we're not going to get some sudden miraculous return. Well, the game, the game after that is Chelsea, and we know that Spurs, for whatever sets of reasons, have got a terrible record against Chelsea. Palace will look at Spurs in the same light. They've won two of the last, what is it, some mad, one of the last 16 games against Spurs. We are their Chelsea. All of which is leading up to a 2-0 defeat at Sellers Park, isn't it? I mean, Spurs won this fixture 4-0 last season, even. It has been that kind of team for them. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a real opportunity, and I don't think it's one to shy away from. And, you know, I 
don't think Postacoglu will be shying away from it. He will, you know, it reminds me a little bit when they went to Luton, which had the feel of an awkward game potentially. And I know it became that because of the red card, but the first 10, 20 minutes, they absolutely battered them. And I think if they come out that quickly against Palace, but this time put one of those away, I just, I think it's the kind of game where if Palace get ahead, they are a good defensive side. And, you know, we saw they beat United at Old Trafford. They went ahead and, you know, didn't give up a ton of chances. I think it could then become tricky, although I'd still back Spurs to create chances even against that pack defence. That one goal, Old Trafford, is the only goal Palace has scored in the last five games. Is that right? And that was from a set yeah. piece. So Yeah, but, you, but you, you're, you're entirely right. It does feel like a game where the first goal is going to be incredibly, incredibly important. All right, then. Listen, thank you both very much indeed. Thanks, James. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you all for listening. Thanks, of course, to John Wenham from the Lily White Rose, who was with us for the early part of the podcast. Um, I remind you, as I always do, that show now is its own official home on Twitter at VFTL Podcast, or you can email us at VFTL at theathletic.com. And for the best Spurs coverage anywhere, make sure you sign up to The Athletic. Uh, Charlie and his colleagues, and James and his colleagues, make sure that the club is covered in the most extraordinary and in depth fashion. Take advantage of our latest offer of just $1.99 a month for 12 months. Simply go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod to subscribe. We'll see you at the start of next week when there is a possibility, well, by Friday night at least, Spurs will be further ahead in the league than they have been since I was in short trousers. Bless you all. The Athletic.